bad. I was like excited, you know, trying to explain. It was so, it's, I don't want this to worry you. It's totally fine. It's not the same cancer. He's like, Mama, read the article. And so it was, you know, okay. So it's an Associated Press article. So I go and I read the article about him. And it says, you know, Chadwick Boseman, known for his roles as James Brown and, and uh, Jackie Robinson and the Black Panther, inspiring audiences worldwide, died today in his home in Los Angeles, surrounded by his family and loved ones. You know, his, his the, goes on to tout his career and everything. And so I read the whole article and I put the phone down and I launch into this speedy slip slide. Like, it's, it's see, he had a very different cancer than you. I know it's, it's so sad he died, but honey, I don't want this to scare you. And Mason's just quiet. And he goes, you can do that? And I was like, do what? what? Yeah. And he said, you can die at home? Mm-hmm. And I just, it struck me. I was like, honey, what do you mean? And he's like, well, it said that he died at home with his family around him. He's like, they let you do that? They let you die at home? And I was just struck because... He was such a smart kid. I think I just gave him, you know, a lot of, you know, he knew things. And this is one of those parenting moments. You're like, oh, God, you don't, you actually think the doctors give you permission to, how does, and the only thing you know of illness is hospitals. And he said, well, why, if you were that sick, why wouldn't you be in the hospital? So I softened and I thought, okay, there is no way to avoid this conversation. I'm going to have the conversation now. Welcome, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kivauver. If you've listened to the show for some time, follow me on socials, watch my TED Talk, you know that I'm passionate about storytelling and the power narratives have in shaping how we see and experiencing the world around us. That's why the minute my guest, J.J. Duncan, finished her talk on the Endwell stage last year, I knew we were meant to have a conversation for this show, too. And now I'm grateful to say it's blossomed into a friendship off the air, too. J.J. Duncan has worked on reality shows as varied as Project Runway and one of my most recent binge-worthy favorites, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. After mothering her son, Mason, through his death at age 11 from leukemia, JJ believes now that the stories we see on television can help shift the culture around death, dying, grief, and loss. She brings so much wisdom and care to our conversations. I can't wait for you to meet her. Welcome to the podcast, JJ Duncan. So happy to have you joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Oh my gosh, Lisa, I'm thrilled to be here. It's uh, I have been a fan of your podcast. I think you're doing really important work, and uh, I have recommended it to others who are going through grief. So I'm I'm so excited to be talking talking with you. Oh, you all heard at the top of the show a little bit about JJ's story, both her professional story and her personal story, and maybe a little bit about how we connected um, arriving here today. So we're going to explore your experience uh, with Mason, with your son Mason, and Mm -hmm. the life of your son Mason, as well Mm -hmm. as the death of your son Mason, and all of the wisdom and the learning and the hopes and dreams that you have for what you've learned from that. Mm -hmm. And of course, the intersection of your learning from your work as an executive producer of um, the Swedish art of death cleaning, which y'all, if you have not watched that show, 
binge it now. Thank me later. Um, but I want to start our conversation where I always do. And I think you as someone in the storytelling world can really appreciate that, which is like, how do we learn these early grief beliefs? And they really are kind of the stories that are at the backdrop of our lives. So thinking of an early memory of loss um, in your childhood or young adulthood and how the adults were modeling grief, what do you think that taught you? What stories did you carry forward about it's, yeah, grief. I, I knew yeah. you were going to ask this question because yeah. I'm a fan. So I, you know, it, it did cause me to think about it for a bit. But I have thought about it in recent years, having gone through uh, the death of my son. You know, I certainly explored my own relationship with grief. Both of my parents are alive. Um, my my uh, my my, you know, my loss of my son is um, the biggest like whammy grief that is, you know, was unexpected. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as the life plan, right? Yes. Um, but so I lost grandparents and um my earliest memory of a death and grief um is actually one of my earliest memories. Um I remember my little brother being born, like you know, foggy pieced together picture of when I my aunt handed me the phone and she said, You have a baby brother. I remember that. And another piece of memory I have, I was probably about four years old, is my great grandfather died. Mm -hmm. uh, granddaddy is what we called him. And he, uh, he was my father's grandfather and very much like my father's, um, I mean, he raised him in a lot of ways. So my father was very close with him. They were very much alike from what I was told. And, um, weirdly, even my son Mason sort of looks like my dad looks like him. There's, you can see the lineage. And I think a lot of personality, um, as we pass it down. And so granddaddy died. And it must have been the first time I saw my father cry mm. because I remember that. Um, but I remember being shielded from all of it. And I remember my mother saying to me, they were going, we lived in Georgia and my granddaddy lived in Alabama. It was about a two hour drive, if that away. And they were going to go to the funeral and I couldn't go to the funeral. I remember wanting to go. Yeah. And I was they I was told it was for adults. And I don't know that it was the wrong call. I was very young. Um, but you know, it was that my parents were trying to protect me and probably yeah. trying to protect everyone there by not bringing a small child to the funeral. So I don't have any, you know, misgivings about that. But but there was something in the whole event that scared me. And I remember very distinctly having a dream. And I can remember the pattern on my curtains. Again, these are like memories coming together right through time. Yeah. And I remember thinking granddaddy was chasing me and I was like running through a hallway and turning a corner and then he would be there. But he was all of a sudden he was with me and he held my face and he said, baby, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm right here with you. And <laughs> I... I was like, and it was such a weird dream, right? It was such yeah. a weird moment. And I remember that so distinctly and I wasn't afraid anymore. And I remember going to bed around that time and looking at that pattern in my curtains. I don't know what that means, but something. And anyway, that's my, I have a very, very distinct sense memory of that moment of being afraid. Every, all the adults sort of saying, it's going to be okay but my granddaddy coming to me in a dream and saying, you don't have anything to be afraid of. I'm right here. And that was 
I mean, you know, you can, for whatever your belief system is, yeah. whether that was my brain walking me through that or whether there was some, you know, his energy coming to tell me, yeah. which I is what I like to believe, yeah. you know, that I'm, I'm here and everything's okay. It, it helps set me up to see that death wasn't just black and white. Yeah. There's yeah. layers to it. And even as a little girl, I knew that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. what a really, I think it's just some, that story is not unlike parts of it are not unlike what we hear before, right? Which is like, keep the kid away. And again, mm -hmm. to your point, again, this is not to bash our, our parents yeah. for their decisions. Right. And also like four-year-olds don't sit still very well. And for maybe your parents, they wanted to be present to the ceremony. And right, right. we all know those things. But right. also touching on this notion of um, that it's not always in the explicit or implicit messages that people say. It can come from these feelings or these senses or these dreams or if you believe mm -hmm. in visitations or however mm -hmm. you think about it, we we can shift our way of seeing death and grief from these other really subtle ways of showing up in the world. And um, yeah. yeah, so I think that's, it's a really just a good reminder for all of us that it comes from mm -hmm. these different places. And it sounds right. like maybe that, that kind of encounter with your great grandfather kind of solidified your, I mean, that kind of stuck with you in terms of how you saw death and grief. Really yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it really did. You know, I, it's again, it's such an old memory and it's such a, again, ha, as memories can be, especially early yeah. memories, yeah. it's kind of fuzzy, but it, it's, it's, it's almost more feelings than anything. So, I do know that when I walked Mason through death, because he was 11 years old and he had questions, yeah, you know, yeah. I shared things like that with him to help him, you know, sort of understand that it's multi-layered. And um, yeah. so, yeah, it's, and it, it taught me that, again, not to tell, say that my parents did the wrong thing. In fact, they probably did the right thing because my dad probably needed the freedom to be able to, to cry and break down. Yeah. Um, but it did teach me that, a little more communication would have been better. I think yeah. communication, you know, we're, we're learning generationally, right. More and more yeah. Um, yeah. about how that goes. And so, yeah, I think it would have, I think it would have helped had I had an adult tell me there's nothing to be afraid of outside of granddaddy telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you brought up Mason. So I want to bring him into the room and to our conversation today. I first learned about Mason and about you. Um, and when you gave a beautiful talk at the Endwell Symposium in December in Los Angeles and told us the story um, about what it was like to have a son be diagnosed and walk walk him through and some and, and really important stories. But do you want to bring Mason into the room? Is there something that you want to share about what it was like when he was first diagnosed, but also just a little bit about Mason? I always like to bring people's life yes. energy to the, to the conversation. Too. Right. But, it's important. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I love talking about Mason. So <laughs> it's one of my, um, it's my best grief medicine, if you will, is yes. to talk about yeah. him and tell stories yeah. about him. So thank you for yeah. allowing me that, that chance. Um, so Mason, what I have, I have two children, um, Mason and Madeline. Mason, um, was, Let's see. He was diagnosed when he was nine years old okay. um, with leukemia. He had uh, T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And um, he was, and I, it's funny because I feel like in some ways that people are like, oh, you're his mom. Oh, you know, yeah. he's died. And so you kind of want to, you know, put him on this pedestal. He was a real, you know, human kid. And he and I could go at it because we're very much alike in a lot of ways. But he it, loved life. 
He exuded yeah. joy. He was a little boy in so many ways in that he loved dinosaurs and action figures and heroes and, you know, stories and movies. Um, but he was the kind of kid who, who, you know, I said this in the Endwell talk there. I noticed after he died, there is a series of pictures from this, when him being a toddler to the year he died of him extending his arms out wide. He held his arms out for photos, which really exemplifies who he was. He opened his arms wide to every experience. He loved to be on stage. He had a beautiful voice. He was a ham in a lot of ways. He cracked jokes. He would, he loved, um, we would take him to my, my wife's parents live, she grew up in Long Island. So when we go to New York, we would often go to Broadway shows, which caused both of my children to fall in love with Broadway musicals. So Mason loved the musical Hamilton and he, we would sing it together all the time. Trips back and forth to the hospital. He and I would listen to the Hamilton soundtrack. And we would sing, we'd have parts, and then we would discuss and break down the story because Mason was a storyteller. He, in fact, after he died, I mean, I knew about this some, but I still have it now because he had his, uh, you know, a cloud drive thing of stories he was writing. And he was writing a story when he died. And he was, and I kind of am taking that and like wanting to do something with it. You know, yeah. he... He was a storyteller. He loved breaking down plot points and, and we would discuss setup and conflict and resolution. And he, you know, in my mind, had he lived, he was definitely, and his plan was definitely to go into the entertainment industry. Although I have that parent thing of like, no, 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 go, go, go do, <laughs> go, you're good in math, go do math, go do science. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but he, he couldn't help himself. He was a storyteller. So yeah. he got it naturally, um, I guess. I mean, <laughs> Apple doesn't fall far, I think. Is right, the right. That's right. Right now, right now. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that with them. And I had this big energy, like when you said arms out wide, not just that he was like welcoming in life and warmth, but he was like taking up space and living, like living to the fullest. And um, I just love that. I mean, I feel like we can all carry a little bit of Mason's um, approach to life with us. So thank you for, yeah. thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. When you first, you know, one of the things you talked about, which I appreciate, and and I always invite listen, uh, guests to share as much or as little of the detail, of course, we're not mm -hmm. here to be um, reality TV kind of in your biz, but I yeah. always also want to make comfortable the fact that we can talk about the hard things, the diagnosis, exactly. the phone calls, the when watching your child be in pain when they have the port or the, you know, mm -hmm. procedure. Tell me a little bit about the the that early time and diagnosis, yeah, which you said from the stage, we have representations of the call for the diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't have representation on the end, what it looks like right. when we walk people to the end. But let's start with what were those early days, weeks, months like for you, for Mason, for your wife, your your daughter? Yeah. 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 What I talked about from the stage and a little bit about what my work has been like since, since Mason's passed. And as I have sort of fallen, I say fallen, stumbled into this world. And now I find yeah. myself in the thick of it is how Hollywood represents death and dying and grief. Um, and that's indicative of how we as a culture to, right. your, to the point of this whole podcast represents, yeah. we don't know what to do with it. It's a very yeah. taboo topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think there's three categories to that. I think that there's, you know, there's, there's the topic of, 
uh, it's taboo to talk about dying, the actual yeah. act of dying and the yes. physical what happens. Yeah. It's taboo to talk about grief and what you're doing with that. And it's taboo to talk about your belief systems afterwards and do, you know, d- visitations, dreams, yeah. what have you, signs, um, or whether you don't believe that too. I think yeah. that's also, it, it, no one wants to really hear your, your experiences because yeah. it touches something that terrifies us, I think. Yeah. Cause we haven't, you know, so. we haven't examined it us ourselves. And yes. so we and don't so, want other yes. people pushing that, pushing on that edge for us. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. And then when we find ourselves face to face with it, we're like, oh my God, what do I do? Yeah. Which is why I believe we need to tell our stories. Yeah. And that's why I love your podcast and I love talking with you. And, yeah. and I think we do need to tell these stories because I know those stories are what I needed to hear suddenly when Mason got sick. I yeah. needed to hear how do people do this? What do you do? How does this happen? So to, to your question, um, Mason was diagnosed when he was nine years old. It was the spring of 2019. Oh boy. He yeah. had, I have some hindsight stuff and I know you know what this is yes. like dealing with cancer yourself and having it happen with your husband. Um, he, in the, in hindsight, you know, I'm like, oh, he was sick all the month of February with pneumonia or something, walking pneumonia. That's what we decided it was with the doctor. And like, they yeah. heard some fluid in his lungs, but he was kind of okay, but kind of not. He kept having growing pains in his chest. Hmm. He was like, I'm having, because I think one of us probably said, oh, it's probably growing pains. Your kid's like, my, you know, my shoulder hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a nine-year-old third grader who runs around like a maniac playing Harry Potter. He's fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, but he was saying it a few times. And and then he got, and then we were like, oh, it must have been the pneumonia that was causing him this pain, this mm-hmm. walking pneumonia. Yeah. We had conversations with his teacher about it, who was lovely. And like, you know, she would say, Mason's not himself today, you know, and this happened for a couple of months. And so I remember I took him and and Madeline, my daughter, on a hike and he was always bounding up, you know, the trails and he got tired and sat down. And I have this guilt because I got mad at him. I was like, I thought he was being lazy and just like, what are you doing? Come on. You, You we do this trail all the time. And he's like, I'm tired. And I'm like, why are you tired? You're fine. You know, and I, I thought he was just being a little jerk, honestly. Yeah. Well, which is as, terrible. by the way. Well, yeah. but yeah, so you have, I'm, it's terrible. Which, it's, it's one of those ugh, things. It's normal. It's such a normal parenting moment. Nine year olds can be, you know, yes, jerks. jerks. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and he, he, that's what I thought he was doing. And, yeah. um, so he, I remember I made him, he sat on this one little, there was a little hill and he said, I'm going to sit here. You guys go to the top and I'll wait. God, now it just breaks my heart, <laughs> you know, but he, um, just realized my headphones are, the battery is dying here. Hang on. Okay. Well, we will pause. I have another set of headphones. I don't know. They're big. Hang on. I know I have like my, are. I sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see on. if those work. Hang on yeah, a second. Hold on. No problem. I have no idea these weren't charged. <laughs> it's happened to me a million times. And it's going to jump in your. The visual. Okay. Let's see. It's giving me a little. I don't know if you recorded on a new track. Let's see. Can you hear that? I hear you fine. You do? Okay. Does that sound better? Okay. I mean, it sounds about the same. So yeah. About the same. Okay. Got it. Okay. We'll, we'll use these. Um, all right. Sorry about that. Um, okay. So headphone switch. (laughs) Um, I feel the need to explain. I'm a producer, so I feel the need to explain. The edit, I have a new video. Why? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so I, we went on this hike and Mason sat and, and he, you know, I have, I have some, I'm actually pretty good about not having too much, although this can come so easily with grief, especially yes. the death of a child, that guilt and remorse. Oh, I should have done. I could have done blah, blah, blah. Yeah. that. That is actually more. I don't I don't have a lot of that around. Could I have saved him? I think I've really come to the conclusion that he was on his yeah. way out no matter what I did. And I did everything. My wife and I did everything within our power to try to save him. Of course. So I don't I don't hold on to that so much. But I do have this bit of. I wish I should have known earlier that he something yeah, was wrong. Of course. But then I, this is kind of how cancer comes about, right? It is how we find it out. It, this yeah. is what happens. You've put together these pieces and what ended up happening was he, um, he, we went to a, uh, there was a school carnival. I'm looking across the street because yeah. I have that. We actually, it's at the school is across the street. And then we went, we we're at a carnival on a Sunday and uh, on Monday morning, he woke up. And his face was swollen, like he his eyes were swollen, and his he looked like he was having an allergic reaction. Bee stung mm. lips, kind of like puffy. And I was like, "Buddy, what are you allergic to?" And he's like, "I don't know." And I was like, "Are you itchy?" And I'm asking all the questions. And we were sitting at breakfast, all eating breakfast together before school. He was eating eggs, and I got him a little Junior Claritin, and like gave that to him. Yeah. And the swelling started to go down. I was like, "How do you feel?" He's like, "I feel fine." And he was like, "He loved school, and he was ready to." Yeah go to school. I want to go. We, yeah. He's like, I got to go. I got to go. He ran across the street because we lived across the street from the school. So he was going to walk his little sister and go to school. And so I emailed his teacher and said, Hey, just so you know, Mason had a little junior Claritin. It wasn't supposed to make him sleepy this morning. Had a little bit of an allergy attack. Just keep an eye on him today. She was like, sure, absolutely. And so I think she emailed me back and said he was running around playing Harry Potter as he usually was. <laughs> and, uh, he would devise big scenes and so again he was a storyteller. He was he would good. give everybody a, yeah he was entertainer. Yeah. Yeah, he was totally an entertainer. So yeah. that night he came home, life as usual. I'm thinking the allergy attacks over. We couldn't quite figure out what it was. No, no detergent had changed. He hadn't had anything yeah. weird to eat. But you know, you never you can't always tell what gets into your kids, you know. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, as they run through their world. And that night he woke up having some of those growing pains and he was crying. And I said, maybe we'll go to the doctor in the morning and uh, went back to sleep. I think I gave him that night. I think I gave him a children's uh, Tylenol or children's ibuprofen, some sort of medicine to help pain. And um, the next morning we woke up and his face was all swollen again. And we were like, what's happening? And sure enough, as he's sitting up at the breakfast table, his face starts going down. And I said, we're going to the pediatrician this morning. And he was mad because he wanted to go to school because they were building puppets in some class and they were going to do a puppet show, which was, um, you know, he was amazing. like, I got I to gotta go to do my puppet show, mama. I can't go to the doctor. And so for whatever reason, both Stacy and I decided to go with him to the doctor, which is kind of interesting now because I do think we had one of those mom spidey sense things happening. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, I know we did because we got to the doctor and um, I have never done this. I'm kind of a... I'm not a helicopter parent. I'm kind of a rub some dirt on it and go play parent, actually. Yeah. Um, but I pulled the doctor outside. We had had this pediatrician their whole life, both of my kids. And I said, hey, um, I just have a, will you just run any test you need to? Something's weird here. And I have a little bit of a mom just ugh about this. Yeah. And he said, okay. And he listened to me, thankfully. And so 
what was happening was Mason's was short of breath. He couldn't blow one of those little balls yeah, up. the yeah, thing. Yeah, So they're yeah. like, maybe he has asthma. Maybe he has. And I was like, okay. And I'm thinking he hasn't been coughing or wheezing, but okay, what do I know? Yeah. So, you know, we, but the doctor thankfully said, well, let's run some tests. He was listening to what I had said. And he sent us for an x-ray down the street. And then we were going to go get some blood work. And Mason was pissed. He was, he was like, he wanted to go to school. He did not want to be doing all these stupid tests. Yeah. And, understandable, uh, understandable. Right, I know. Yeah. And uh, so we went to go do the x-ray. And it's, again, hindsight. The x-ray technician, you know, you wait and wait and wait in line and it's your turn and you go. And usually they just shuffle you through because they, they're busy. And the x-ray technician came out and she said, will you just sit right here? Because I need to make sure, I just want my boss to check to see if there's any other images we have to get. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, I want, I need to get to work. I'm, I was running a show at that point. And so I was, uh, I needed to get to work. I wanted him to get to school. He seemed to be fine now. You know, I'm thinking, yeah. I want to know what's wrong, but let's get the show on the road. So Mason and I are sitting there and he's itchy and I'm like, calm down. It's fine. And she comes out along with her boss and they hand me a CD imagery of, they're like, you might want this for your records. And I was like, okay. Um, and they were like, okay. And they, there was just the weirdest energy around the conversation. They were being so sweet. Yeah. And I was like, and I, even that didn't like, it's more, that's a hindsight thing. And then we go to get the next stop was to go get blood work. And I'm promising Mason, you can go do this and I'm, and then go to school and later on, I'll get you a treat for doing all this, whatever. And we go to the blood work. And while we're doing that, and of course, then your child's getting stuck and all that. And which has became little did we know the next two years of our lives. Right. Yeah. Um, the doctor texted me and he said, and Stacy, meanwhile, my wife had like, gone back home to do something and was going to come pick us up. And Apparently he texted her too. And he said, come back to the office. And we were like, and that was when I was like, something's up. And we go back and uh, he, again, the gentleness with which everybody responded. And, and I think this is unique to pediatric oncology. I know you didn't go through this. And I know your husband didn't go through this. <laughs> no. I have learned that pediatric oncologists um, and, and the world pediatric oncology yeah. is a little different. Um, and that's a topic for another yeah. day. We can go on. We could talk on and on about yeah. that. But he, he, the doctor, I was standing in the room and the doctor took my arm. I have a tattoo on my arm that says, uh, now I have two. I got one for Mason. But before, at the time I only had one. And it says, grow me as you will. And it's a tree. Mm. and uh, it's a spiritual tattoo to me. It's a meaning for my own growth in life and um, my belief system. And um, he took my arm and he turned it over and he touched my arm and he like read the tattoo, grow me as you will. And he looked at me and he said, that's beautiful. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. This is you very know, intimate all, for a doctor's very, office. Yeah, it was yeah. very strange. And he said, I've gone ahead and called ahead to CHLA, which is Children's Hospital yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, they're waiting for you in the ER. And I was like, he's like, and, and I'm thinking, and Stacey and I are looking at each other like, what is happening? And no one's saying the words. And he said, some of the tests have come back that shows a little bit of abnormality. He's got fluid in his lungs. And so we want him to go be seen. And I was like, fluid in his lungs. Okay. And I said, and I said, then I go, is this like a lymphoma thing you're worried about or what? And he said, we don't really know. It could be. 
When we come back, JJ walks us through that before and after moment, the before and after of receiving a life-altering diagnosis, something that so many of us know all too well. It's as if there's a fracture in the universe when time warps, voices sound like Charlie Brown's teachers, and we don't know what to make of the world as it is now. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, JJ Duncan. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. Friends, I'm focusing on three C's in 2024, and no, not the C, cancer, that C I've been enduring all of 2023. My focus for 2024 is these three C's, connection, collaboration, and celebration. Why am I telling you that? Well, my friend, that's because... I want to connect and celebrate with you this year. As I've shared in previous episodes, my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order. Seriously, this still gives me the chills every time I say it. As a first-time author, I'm learning that pre-orders of the book are really important to show bookstores, which happens to be my favorite place to hang out, and my publisher, that the shelves need to be stocked fully when the book drops June 4th. So I realize this is a perfect opportunity to rock two of the C's I'm focusing on in 2024, connect and celebrate. On May 22nd, which also happens to be my birthday, I'm hosting a book launch party celebration, and I'd love to have you join me. After the show, all you need to do is visit your favorite online bookseller like bookshop.org, Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and pre-order a copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss. Then make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW. That's Lisa K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R-M-S-W. And drop me a DM there to let me know you pre-ordered your copy and I'll share the party invite link with you. I can't wait to meet you, to thank you for supporting the show and, of course, the book, answer questions about the book, dish about behind the scenes of the podcast, and more. And, of course, just take some time to celebrate our lives together. Plus, I've invited a very special guest to join me as co-host. I can't wait to share that reveal with you soon. So after you've pre-ordered your copy of Grief as a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite online bookseller, don't forget to message me on Insta that you did. I'll send you the party invite link and the first of my many thank yous for your support. I know it's just a Zoom party, but I think I'm going to get dressed up in something fun and festive. 
How about you? And so you just go into this autopilot mode yeah. where you're like, and so we take him to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and which we had never been to before because, and I thought always thought of that as the hospital that you go to if your child has cancer or you, you know, they, they have some horrible thing happen to them. Um, and so we go to the ER and sure enough, they were waiting for us and we went right into a room. There was no waiting. There was, it was all very like, the, again, unlike any experience I'd ever had days of te- day of testing and everything. Mason's watching guardians of the galaxy too. And they came in after a long day and they wouldn't let them have anything to eat in case they needed to do a, a procedure. So I'm trying to keep my hungry nine-year-old now at bay and he wants to go to school. He doesn't understand. He's like, I feel fine, but he can't breathe really well. He's like, it's a cold. He's try- he's self-diagnosing now. And um, it's pneumonia. I think he kept saying it was his pneumonia. Anyway, they came and they asked Stacy and me to take a walk with them. And mm. Stacy and I just looked at each other and we, I remember holding, like we were like gripping each other's hands yeah walking down what was the longest hallway walk of my life. Yeah. It was just this long, long walk. And we followed the doctor and nobody was saying anything. And it was just, the silence was crazy. And we go into this little room and it was filled with people in white coats. And they brought in a a monitor and they showed that Mason's lungs were sure enough filled with fluid and there was a mediastinal mass, which is a slushy mass wrapped around his heart and trach, uh, trach area, and it was closing in, and it was critical. And they were explaining to us that they had to admit him to ICU and that this was cancer. And we didn't know what kind yet, but it was we were going to do further tests to determine exactly what, but it was either leukemia or lymphoma. Well, it was a blood cancer. And... um And that ER doctor looked me in the eye and said, I'm so sorry, but your life just changed. Mm. And I, I mean, he was right. He was right. Everything, everything changed in that moment. Yeah. And we became a cancer family and which is a thing I found out. I mean, you know, this, when one person in the family has cancer, everyone has cancer. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that became life. And, uh, it was, (laughs) <laughs> oh, so much to say about what it was, but that's how we found out. And um, and what did yeah, you decide was, to uh, tell Mason in the early in the early days? Because I think that's one of the things you know. I've had pediatric palliative social workers on the show over yeah. the years, and and friends with a lot of folks in the pediatric yeah space as well. And you know, I think again, that's like this protection mode that we have, of course, as parents. Totally, totally legitimately versus mm-hmm. too much information. What's the right amount of information? hundred percent. So how did yeah. you, did you feel supported by the team to figure out how to have a conversation? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, it was, we were in such shock ourselves. Right. And Stacy and I decided we weren't going to use the word cancer yet. Yeah. We were like, we'll tell them in a few days, let's get past this, this critical moment in the ICU yeah. and not, this is scary enough. We're, and we were going to, I don't even, we didn't say we'll tell them in three days or four days. We didn't make it. We just said, let's just hold off on the word cancer yet. The C word. Yeah. C word. We wouldn't say it. We were so terrified of it. And um, <laughs> we, I remember going home to Madeline 
we were, Stacey and I would start to swap off. Now one of us would go home with their daughter. Or the other one was in with Mason. And I took my shift to go home. It must've been two days in. I don't really remember the timeline, but it was just two or three days in. And our oncologist, our pediatric oncologist came in, who was this older guy who wore Hawaiian shirts and was kind of like, I don't know, jolly, but also kind of like, man, very matter of fact. And he just said cancer in front of Mason without checking with us. And we were like, <gasps> we were horrified. But he was so matter of fact about it. And Mason was like, I, I wasn't there. So I was mad because I wasn't in the room. I was like, oh, man. And, and Stacy's like, well, he knows. And I was like, what? How? And so I was, now I see, I was trying so hard to control everything. Yeah. And you're so out of control that I weirdly think it was maybe a good thing that he just yeah. said it. And he probably knows all too well that parents are terrified and he just knows how to rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah. That same doctor who we found out was, by the way, like one of the best in the field, had been around forever. Everybody respected this guy. Um, that same doctor, a year later when Mason relapsed, we were in a little room. Little room conversations are horrible. Yeah. We learned to hate the little room. <laughs> yes. When they'd be like, would you like to come take a talk walk? We were like, God damn it. No. No. <laughs> No, we don't want to go into the, your freaking little room. Sorry. I'd like to go the other way, please. Thank you. Yeah, like exactly. Like just, yeah. We don't like that room. Except yeah. we like outside, please. And um, we were in a little room. He had relapsed. And we were learning it, what T-cell relapsed leukemia looked like. Um, in a lot of ways, I was like, just hit it again. We got rid of it once. Let's go again. <laughs> I didn't realize what was going on. And Dr. was on the – he was on the um, – a speakerphone. He wasn't in. And we had another oncologist in, in, on the team with us while that one oncologist, that head oncologist was on the phone. And we, and Stacy, I think said, what's the prognosis and, you know, will he survive this? And that doctor just said, again, bluntly as anything, he said, uh, about one in four kids will survive this. And we just, we just lost it. Like, how dare you say that to us? You know, it was just like this moment of just reality squad smash. He was right. And Mason didn't survive it. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, um, I weirdly now, I think, I don't know that the method was the best, but I also think in some ways, sometimes maybe it was the best thing to just Tell us that so we could learn to accept so that we could step into radical acceptance, which is yeah. what we needed to learn to do. Yeah. And it was those kind of cold splashes of water on the face that yeah. helped us do it. But Mason, real quick about Mason, going back to his first diagnosis, when he learned, I remember later that day I went up to the hospital. You know, I'd gotten my shower and my clothes changed and I went back up there and I was sitting there and he was on his iPad on a FaceTime with one of his best friends. And um, he said, it was a little girl, Nicola, and he said to her, um, I have cancer. And she said, no, you don't. Don't make up lies. And he's like, no, I really do. And she's like, come on, Mason. And she's thinking he's just being, you know, and he's like, no, I really, he's like, mama, will you tell her I have cancer? And he turns the iPad to me. And I'm just like, and I was like, hi, sweetie. Yeah, Mason has cancer. <laughs> I'm just like, what do you say? And such a surreal, such a surreal thing. Yeah. So it just started, we started to get used to saying it. And I think that actually, again, helped him have this radical acceptance of it. And that's, 
the key, you know, it doesn't make it, it doesn't go away if you don't, if you pretend everything's okay. Yeah. Um, and if you do start saying it, which is goes back to sort of part of my whole mission to tell stories about this. Yeah. You learn to start living with it in a way that doesn't make it quite so the monster in the corner that nobody's yeah. talking about. Yeah. Um, in fact, Mason being the, the, cut up that he was would say things uh, one of his favorite jokes was he'd ask for something you know like a junk food or something to eat and i'd say no honey and he'd be like but i have leukemia <laughs> and he would he, he thought that was the funniest thing he'd be like mama i have leukemia can i you know can i stay up late so milking it. it was like yeah totally milking it and of course it would make me laugh and he loved to make me laugh but he learned that we it's it's a part of who we are now and so because our, as that doctor said, our lives are going to change and our lives changed. And, yeah. and now I talk about grief and death in the same way. I'm very blunt about it. I'm very yeah. like, I make jokes about it. I, which make people I think are like, what? <laughs> My son died and you can make crack jokes. And yeah, Mason would want that. <laughs> yeah. Well, humor, just like poetry, metaphor, other things allows us to get at things that straightforward language just often doesn't allow yes. us to do. And it gets us, gets us to access those things. So, you know, a lot of the, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about that journey and that, that moment, you know, the moment that changes everything. And I think I can, it's a safe bet that everybody listening to this podcast, if you're listening to grief as a sneaky bitch has that moment or more than, or more than one of the moment. And we all know how time stands still, and yeah. everything becomes myopic. And then, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher is talking. Yes, it does. Right? There's all of those things. But so I think we can all relate to that. And if, if, if even hearing that listeners kind of brought you to that place, just like I always invite us to just, mm-hmm. you know, take a deep breath, place your hand over your heart. Yeah. But the other thing that you, the themes there about the different doctors and even Mason's, you know, straightforward language and you sort of being pushed into the place of having that straightforward language is, you know, not saying the words, not saying cancer, not saying things doesn't mean that people don't know something's wrong. So like Mason knew mom, moms seem nervous. Mom seems scared. Yeah. And, and just like, you know, I mean, he loved Harry Potter. So just like we didn't want to say he who must not be named, there's this power that happens when we don't talk about something and to be able to start talking about it, as you said, yeah, and to be able to, in a way, also radical acceptance for sure, but also begin to integrate this new piece of information into the story of our lives, right? Right. We are storytelling creatures and the thing, the places where I think we feel overwhelmed or get stuck is when there's this disconnect between this new piece of information and the yeah. story that we know about ourselves. And so again, maybe the, you know, the Frank doctor is not for everybody, but to what, however, <laughs> I did not appreciate it in the moment. <laughs> I was not happy. But yeah. However, we get to that place where we can begin to speak mm-hmm. honestly about yeah. what's going on for us. Um, because we know it at some other level, it has a bigger fear and it kind of removes, you know, the sort of over, I mean, not that there wasn't fear, I'm sure having a child with leukemia, but there's that extra layer of fear when we just don't want to talk about something. So I absolutely appreciate you reflecting back and having Mm -hmm. some appreciation for, um, 
what you now really understand is that bad things are going to happen to us. Bad things yes. are going to happen to us. And we, and to that very nature, we have no control. We have no agency in those moments. You know, when the doctor says those things or when they give you the prognosis or the diagnosis. So the only agency we have is in how we tell our story. Exactly. That's it. No, that's exactly that's it. it. That, like, that's and, the and bottom line. That's yeah. it. 100%. And we carried that. Voldemort, not saying the, the name that she'll not be saying, is the perfect thing because, you know, Harry Potter yeah. was a thing. Yeah. It still is in our family. We actually yeah. often say Mason is just off at Hogwarts because he turned 11 and he just. <laughs> I love it. Um, that form nine and three quarters. He just, it's, that's right. He just went. Sorry, listeners, we're nerding out on Harry Potter. Yeah, we are. Sorry, it happens. Sorry, but, it happens. Um, yeah, when you when you have an eleven year old boy die, you have to find yeah. those that yeah. Star Wars, he, the Force is with him. I mean, all that. So like yeah. we, we we go there. Um, but you know, I actually had people tell me, "Don't say cancer." Like they wanted me to positively think my way through this, and it it was so. I was hurtful. frustrated with it because you yeah. know it, it's it's hurtful and it's not helpful because what it does is it it starts that cognitive dissonance thing of like, this isn't happening. Everything's okay. I'm not going to pretend I'm going to, and I, I really have a problem with that um, thinking. And I understand where it comes from. People are afraid and they think that if they just think good thoughts, you know, I trust me, I was in a good space and thinking very happy thoughts when Mason was diagnosed. So it's not like I, you know, willed myself. I didn't manifest cancer because no. I was, you know, in a dark space, yeah. we were in a good space in life. And so you know, not saying cancer, not acknowledging what was happening was not helpful for our family. No. What was helpful was to absolutely say, okay, I see you cancer. What can you teach me? Yeah. And how does this work? And then it became death. Yeah. And so Mason and I, we had long conversations about death and he knew he was going to die. And I, you know, I've said this on stage, these, those were the hardest conversations of my life. They were also the most beautiful, formative conversations that I, I can't, I don't know how to describe. Yeah. I, there are no words that can describe it, but I try because the rewards that came from being able to communicate with him yeah. and walk him through that and not pretend everything was fine, not say, you're just going to go to sleep and yeah. not, not, because th he knew yeah. even I, I remember this is one of those weird things like, you know, the hindsight thing, you know, I remember years ago reading an article that and I don't know why I was reading this article again. It's like I think of my puppet masters in the universe just like here, <laughs> read this. This is going to help you one day. Um, I read an article that said that uh, what what do you tell a terminal child who's dying? Yeah. Yeah. And that for a long time, the thought was not to tell them. Yeah. And then there was there was a study that was done, I want to say in the 80s. I'm, I'm going on memory here. So this is not to be quoted as, as yeah. <laughs> this is my my reader's brain just remembering this article. But studies were done that showed that even very young children yeah. knew what was happening to them. And if the adults weren't talking about it, they were afraid to bring it up. Yes. So they didn't scare their parents yes. and all the adults. Yeah. So it became this literal elephant in the room and, you know, and it was and not helping. And then nobody, and then nobody feels connected and supported. Correct. Everybody feels more isolated and a lack Correct. of belonging. The same thing happens with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. grief too. Yeah, well, exactly. 
And, and you're, and you know, I appreciate how you said, like, it was the most terrifying conversations you, of course, never want to have as a parent. And if you could wave a magic wand, of course, and not have that happen, you would. And what a gift. This is yes. the both and of life. Both and. Speaking yes. of tattoos, That's right? right? I this know. is the both and of life, right? And what a powerful, um, spiritual connecting conversation. And those conversations can only have happen when we're honest. And I want to add to what you were saying, which is I think there's this another false myth about like, if we talk about it, then we're giving up. Right. And then we're, and then we're like negative. And I think that is just such a false, you can talk about it, be realistic about it. And actually by doing that, that can help you get really present and be really present to what is, what is now, what do I have in my capacity right right now? What agency do I have? What do I want to celebrate? What do I want to you know, what do I want to fight? Is there pieces that I can work against? But you can only do that when you name it, which is why storytelling is so powerful. And to the point of walking Mason to the end, one of the stories you told on the stage, I'd love for you to tell here Mm -hmm. is about the representation of what it's like to die and what, and, and a little bit about with Chadwick. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we come back, JJ tells us the story of when she realized the power of storytelling and representation when it comes to topics of death and dying. It involves the surprising story of how a man who played a superhero opened the door for her to have one of the most difficult and most important conversations she would have with her son Mason in his too short life. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, JJ Duncan. Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind the scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. As someone who worked in nonprofits for most of my career as a social worker and as a former nonprofit co-founder myself, I know the incredible work these organizations do and just how hard it is to get the word out about them. So today, in honor of my conversation with JJ about the death of her son, Mason, from leukemia, 
I wanted to tell you about two special organizations who are working to support families, caregivers, medical providers, and researchers so that someday no one will have to experience the death of their child from cancer. Our guest today, J.J. Duncan, has established a nonprofit called Not Today Cancer. You can learn more by visiting nottodaycancer.care. I also wanted to tell you about the Phoenix Stone Foundation, run by Heather and Ben, parents to beautiful Phoenix, who I had the honor of meeting years ago before his death from neuroblastoma. You can learn more about their incredible work by visiting phoenixstonefoundation.org. You know, sitting here at this stage, I'm, you know, it's a little after three years after Mason died. Weirdly, I still feel like I'm in new grief and I'm like, it's been three years. (laughs) Um, I think that's just part of it. That's just part of my journey. But um, it's important to note that I didn't come out like, we need to talk about this. I mean, I think that explains, you know, that doctor saying that I wasn't like the most together parent who knew how to do this. Um, I, I, I am proud of some of the ways I handled things, but I learned as I went. Yeah. Um, so that's important to say. And this is a really good example of this story. Um, Chadwick Boseman, uh, if, for those who who remember and know him, uh, he was known as the Black Panther. He also played Jackie Robinson and James Brown, and he was, you know, an amazing actor. Yeah. And he died in, I think it was August of 2020. Um and this, that was about three or four months before Mason died, actually. And um, he died of colon cancer. And it was a great big surprise to the public because he had kept it quiet. Yeah. Well, Mason was, an, at that point, soon to be 11. So he was a 10-year-old boy uh, who was a huge Avengers fan. I mean, you know, we had all the costumes. We, had, we actually had a signed Chadwick Boseman poster that someone had given us. Uh, he never got to meet Chadwick, but... He was a huge Black Panther fan. We all were. Um, you know, he he actually did get a chance to talk to uh, Elizabeth Olsen um, at one point. Okay. So we were we were big fans of the Avengers, all of them. And Chadwick was, and the Black Panther movies were a family favorite. And so we were coming back from a hospital visit. We had all these extended hospital stays during his relapse. Terrible, like month at a time hospital stays. And uh, we were coming home from yet another extended visit. And we were setting Mason up in his favorite place in the whole wide world, which was mine and Stacy's bed. Um, we would get him comfortable and, you know, it was, he got to be in the mom's bed and that was a real comfort yeah. space for him. Yeah. Um, it's the same bed I used to bring him back to when he was a newborn and I'd breastfeed him at night, you know, yeah. so that, that, that bed was uh. his safe space in the world. And um, so I'm getting him set up in the bed and we're sort of, you know, and the, our world is cancer. He's got, a port and tubes and, you know, all the stuff, everything's going, you know, we've got everything sterile. And, uh, I look at my phone and I see a, a, a notice that's come up that says Chadwick Boseman has died. And I gasped. I was like, Oh my God, Chadwick Boseman died. And Mason said, what? And I was like, uh, suddenly I like realized what I said out loud. And I kind of like glanced over the article and sure enough, it, my eyes landed on the word cancer. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to discuss this with him. And so I put my phone down and I just started busying myself with all the cancer stuff around the room. And I was like, yeah, it's really sad. But, you know, and he was like, well, how did he die, mama? And I said, he was sick. And Mason said, sick with what? Cancer? And I just, yeah, you know, I did not want to talk about it with him. And 
It's the last thing I wanted to discuss. He here he was filled with cancer. His one of his heroes literally has died with cancer, and I've accidentally said it, and I'm just regretting. Like, why did I have to? You know, I'm so stupid for just saying something out loud. I'm beating myself up in that moment. And Mason said, "Mama, read the article." And I was like, I didn't want to read it. I was like, I was like, ah, and I kind of glanced through. I'm like, yeah, uh, it was colon cancer. It was colon cancer. It was a very different cancer than you had. I was like excited, you know, trying to explain. It was so. It's. I don't want this to worry you. It's totally fine. It's not the same cancer. He's like, Mama, read the article. And so it was, you know, okay. So it's an Associated Press article. So I go and I read the article about him. And it says, you know, Chadwick Boseman, known for his roles as James Brown and, and uh, Jackie Robinson and the Black Panther, inspiring audiences worldwide, died today in his home in Los Angeles, surrounded by his family and loved ones. You know, his, his the, goes on to tout his career and everything. And so I read the whole article and I put the phone down and I launch into this speedy slip slide. Like it's, it's see, he had a very different cancer than you. I know it's, it's so sad he died, but honey, I don't want this to scare you. And Mason's just quiet. And he goes, you can do that? And I was like, do what? what? Yeah. And he said, you can die at home? Mm -hmm. And I just, it struck me. I was like, honey, what do you mean? And he's like, well, it said that he died at home with his family around him. He's like, they let you do that? They let you die at home? And I was just struck because... He was such a smart kid. I think I just gave him, you know, a lot of, you know, he yeah. knew things. And this is one of those parenting moments. You're like, oh, God, you don't, you actually think the doctors give you permission to, how does, it, and the only thing you know of illness is hospitals. And he said, well, why, if you were that sick, why wouldn't you be in the hospital? So I softened and I thought, okay, there is no way to yeah. avoid this conversation. I'm going to have the conversation now. And, and he's showing you his, he's trusting you with yes. his deep curiosity. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we have now established in our family that we say, we say Voldemort's yeah. name. We yeah. say what's going on. Yeah. So I have to say it. Yeah. So I said, well, honey, sometimes if medicines stop working and someone's really, really sick, they can go on something called hospice care. Yeah. And that means they can go home or to a home-like environment and they have a nurse that helps them with things like pain and just anything to keep them comfortable. And then they just can let themselves die. And he was just enthralled with that information. He's just, his eyes were so wide. I could see the wheels turning. Yeah. And he nodded. And that was all he needed to hear. And what ended up happening was a few months later, we had... We did everything. We did a clinical trial. We went to Houston for this clinical trial. Yeah. It, was, it was a Hail Mary pass, a little too little too late, honestly. It was amazing science happening there, but he was too sick. And uh, we came home and our oncologist team, he had to have a blood transfusion and we were going in for an appointment and they sat us down in a little room. <laughs> and uh, Mason, they looked at Mason, this one doctor, and we were there with that same doctor who had, uh, you know, been, but then there was another Forever no uh, Hawaiian shirt doctor, Hawaiian shirt doctor. Yeah. yeah. And then there was another uh, doctor who was a, uh, a fellow at the time. And she was so wonderful. And she said, and Mason loved her. She was a yeah. pretty young woman and he just thought she was great. And yeah. she took his hands and she said, Mason, there's no more medicine that's going to help you that we know about. And so we don't have anything else to help you other than to just help alleviate the pain. 
And Mason said, does this mean I'm going to die? And she said, yes, it does. It means you're going to die. Sorry. No, you don't. Uh, no apologies. <laughs> and, you know, he looked at me like this panic. And he said, Mama, I'm not ready to die yet. I'm not ready to die. Yeah. And something came over me in that moment. I don't know. This was just like the, one of those mothering. And I said, you're not dying right now, baby. Not right now. You're not dying. Yeah. And you may not be ready right now, but when the time comes that you're going to die, I think you're going to be ready. And I said, and you don't have to be ready right now. You don't have to be because it's not going to happen today. Yeah. And it calmed him down. It calmed me down. I don't know where I got that information. Yeah. I just immediately jumped into, you know, and um, so we went home with an appointment on the books to come in the next day for like uh, chemo, which actually didn't, wasn't, we knew wasn't going to make the cancer go away, but it helped alleviate his bone pain. So we were going to do regular doses of this chemo. Uh, I think it was once a week to help keep the bone pain down. And he was going to do uh, palliative joining into hospice care, I think is what we'd sort of discussed yeah. with the doctor, but it was, we hadn't really talked about how that was going to look yet. We were just absorbing the information and we got home. And of course, Stacy and I are getting him set up in our bed and I'm sort of busying myself again. And I sit down and I just look at him like, I don't know what to say. Yeah. And he just looked at me and he goes, mama, I want to, I want to die like Chadwick Boseman. And I said, honey, what do you mean? And he said, I want to do it like Chadwick did. I want to be at home with you and mommy and Madeline. And I don't want to go back to the hospital if that's okay. And that is how he made it clear to me that he wanted a home death. And what ended up happening about a week later, I don't think I said this on the end well stage, this part, but he, uh, he had about a week later, we did actually go in for one more. It was in Kristen, this chemotherapy that helped his bone pain. We came home and he had actually had a kind of a rally that weekend. And that's a, that's a whole story into itself. But about a week later, we were sitting at home and he wasn't feeling well. And he, I'm sitting and he had had a nosebleed and I was sitting like kind of like he was on the side of my bed and I was sitting like, I think it was on my knees and I was looking up at him and he said something and it came out complete gobbledygook, like, like, and then he, he sort of recognized what was that? And he even said, he goes, what did I just say? He goes, I was trying to say, and he said whatever. And I, and I just recognized he's having a, a neurological incident. Yeah. And I said, squeeze my hands for me. And he could squeeze with his right hand and he couldn't squeeze with his left and he couldn't lift his left side. Yeah. And I'm thinking he's had a stroke. And I'm remembering the conversation we had that he wanted to die at home. Yeah. And I'm remembering that the doctors have said there's nothing else to be done. I went and I called, I said, I'm going to go call the doctor. I went and I called the doctor and they knew our plan because I had let them know. And she said, it sounds like the cancer may have gotten to his brain. If you bring him in, you need to know that we're going to have to admit him. Yeah. And I, I said, okay. And I hung the phone up and I went back to my room and I, sat and I looked him in the eye and I said, baby, I called. Um, 
I can take you now to the hospital and we can go and maybe we can do something to help the hand and everything, maybe. And I said, but if we take you, they're going to admit you. And he said, he just looked at me. He was like in this moment, this, oh, I don't know how to put it. Transcendent. Wise, transcendent yeah. young man. And he said, no, mama, I want to stay home. Yeah. And I said, okay. And to not rush your child immediately to the doctor to make it better, make it yeah. better, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. Yeah. To have the assurance in my soul that I was doing the right thing yeah. only happened because we had the conversation about Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. It only happened because I ended up being brave enough to tell the truth to my son and he was brave enough to ask the right questions and to say to me, I don't want to die in a hospital. I want to die at home. And so I, I let my son die in that moment, not in that moment. It took him um, another day and a half. He, by the next day he had lost speech and uh, he could still squeeze with that right hand though. And so we had a signal yes for squeeze and no meant no squeeze. And so by doing that, we learned that he wanted to listen to the Hamilton soundtrack. We we learned that he wanted to watch Harry Potter, Goblet of Fire. We put that one. I went through all the movies. I was like, I was like, you know, the first movie, the this second one, one, this one, yeah, this one. It was number four. He wanted Goblet of Fire, and we learned that he wanted to see friends, and so we had people come over, and he had a beautiful death. He died with Stacy and me holding him in in our bed, and uh, God, it's because we talked about it. Because we read a story about a superhero who died and it made it real for him. And I would not have known what to do without those kinds of stories and without us discussing those things and having those conversations and asking the right questions and saying the truth. Um, That, that is why Mason died beautifully. Yeah. Um, I am not at all, you know, I, I know there are people who lose their children and other family members in violent ways. There are children who go to school and who won't come home because of a school shooting. I know a woman whose son, you know, died with an overdose on the bathroom floor, their adult son. Yeah. yeah. I, there are some deaths out there that are going to happen because of circumstances that are beyond our control. So, it's even more important to me that this becomes a zeitgeist conversation. Yeah. A conversation that is not saved for just the worst moments. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, of course you're not going to talk to your nine-year-old, your 10-year-old or your 11-year-old about how to die until it's time. However, as an adult, we have to know how to have those conversations. We have to know how to be truthful with our children uh, with anyone. And so I, you know, Chadwick Boseman <laughs> taught me a lot and so did Mason. And so my mission now is really just to tell people to tell these stories, tell these stories, because at some point it's going to help somebody else. Yeah. And it's going to help you. It helps me. It helps me tell these stories because I can process it. You know, again, we're narrative creatures. You know, this all too. Yes. Well. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're narrative creatures. We do form stories 
to help us understand our world. And I have to understand what happened to my son. And I can understand it more and more when I am, and I can be in more acceptance of it when I tell the story and I recognize the truth of it. Yeah. It's that my son only lived 11 years and I got to bring him into this world and I got to hold him while he went out. And that is your both and the worst thing ever. And also my greatest gift. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to pause and just make some space for you, for Mason. Thank you. For this experience and this wisdom, the wisdom that he offered you and your wife and the world via you now and the wisdom you gained and that you're walking in the world. Stories matter. This is why I host this podcast. This is why we're in season five, right? Yeah. Stories matter both for the teller and the listeners. Yes. Um, How we tell our stories, the language we use, the the way we listen to stories, those things matter. Like there's some components there. It's not just, Mm -hmm. you know, spinning out the story, but all of that is so important. And to your point, it allows us to understand what's possible, what's yes. not. It allows us to understand, to work against that sort of, when fear takes hold, we feel this isolation and the separation and this only me-ness. Correct. Right. And which then kicks into our right nervous system activated, and then we don't know how to behave, and then we become more retreating and more fearful. And the yes. more we tell these stories, and again, maybe not to your nine-year-old who's perfectly healthy, but the more we tell these stories in different places, the more we feel connected, the more we feel we belong, yes. the more skills we have about telling our own stories, right? Like to do Absolutely. that, I think is beyond just our death stories, our grief stories, just whatever our, it might be your chronic illness story. It might be whatever your story is, the stories that don't get out there. And I know you're on a mission and we're on the same mission. It's in line, of course, even with like the work of Endwell, which is how do we yeah. use um, storytelling, particularly thinking in media as a representation of our larger yes. culture. You know, um, mm-hmm. for those of you who've listened to my TED talk, that's really what I was talking about, sort of the layers um, of the ways in which we now understand what's possible or not because of those stories, systems, yeah. culture, media. So we're on this mission to, um, I know you've said to tell everybody that death is not medical event. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, right? That's right. It doesn't have That's to be. Right. And, and that grief looks like all kinds of things and that yeah. there's, um, it's a bomb to be able to be in community with people. To tell our story. Absolutely. Including, really, by the way, you know, where we started, I want to not end our conversation before I say that, including telling our stories with humor. Yes, totally. Well, that's what, you know, my show, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, um, if you haven't seen it, it's, I'm not just saying this to try to push my no. own story. I really do think it's this, it's, it's, it's started this conversation about, you know, it, at its, at its base, it is a show about cleaning up your house, clean up your house, right? There's a bunch of shows like that. Um, what makes this different is, is that 
the the idea behind Swedish death cleaning. It actually came from a little book of the same name. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, the idea is to clean up your crap before you die, so that your loved ones don't have to do it. Yeah. But in so doing, the Swedes are very pragmatic people, and they're more pragmatic about talking about death than we are. Yeah. In America, and um. So what we ended up doing, we we knew we didn't want it to be this scary. You're going to die. Clean your house. <laughs> That's not what we intended to do. Amy Poehler was involved with it. She was an executive producer and our narrator. Um, Scout Productions, who does Queer Eye, uh, were yeah. also uh, producers in this. And then I was the showrunner. And so we brought this this level of humor to it where we really didn't try to tell sad stories. We tried to open up this idea that, yeah, we're all going to die. <laughs> it's all, It's going to happen to everyone. So let's just talk about it. And let's clean up our crap in the process. And so what we did is we went into these eight different homes and learned all sorts of different stories of different levels of grief. One woman, Shanna, was actually dealing with stage four uh, yeah. metastatic lung cancer. Yeah. She died this past August mm -hmm. and um, ended up becoming a dear friend of mine. And I, I talked with her a lot off camera after the whole thing, too. Um but she stood at a dinner party and told her friends that she needed to talk about her death, her yeah. pending death. That episode broke me open in the best yeah. way. In, in the, the best, best way, way. right? Yeah. Shanna yeah. just, oh, I just, mm. Shanna really was an amazing experience. They all were. Everybody was. Um, and in so doing, we even Shanna would crack these jokes. And like Mason cracking a joke about, but mama, I have leukemia, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it. it's funny that it, it, I think it's in the joke telling that we can normalize it to your yeah. point. Yeah. And that we can take away the scariness of it and start to have those conversations. Yeah. It's not going to say it's going to make it fine. It's not going to make it not sad, but there's so many components to death. So when we start opening up to those stories and we can have a realistic portrayal of that in Hollywood yeah. Yeah. and not just, it, you know, in Hollywood, it's either like, ooh, ooh, and someone dies and it's over. That's it. That's the death. Yeah. Or someone gets shot. You know, most of yeah. it, they don't, every story doesn't have to be Mason's story. I don't ever mean that, you know, they yeah. don't all have to be this, but, to acknowledge that death is such a natural part of life and what it actually looks like yeah, to me is such a layered human experience that is so inherent to who we are yeah, that I think that we have so many more stories to tell that will help people. And, and so that's where Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, again, it's just a cleaning show. But what we did is but it's we not. just weren't afraid of the word death. Exactly. Yeah. It's so much yeah. more. And so we talked about grief and, and the show really ended up being about attachments, right? Yeah. Like, what do we hold on to that yeah. we're trying to hold on to something that has been lost? Yeah. Um, and at what point is it appropriate to hold on to it? And how can we do it in a way that honors that thing? It doesn't say throw yeah. away everything that makes you feel yeah. something, by the way. That's not it. Um, it's not about even minimalism. What it's about is rep if, if it's sitting in the box, though, and you're afraid to look at it, but you also won't throw it away, that's probably yeah. something that you need to get rid of because there's some information there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. that's what the show explores. And uh, and we did it through the lens of death. Yeah. And lo and behold, people love it. <laughs> um, it's, because it's we helped. are hungry for it. We are We're hungry it's why, for it's it. why I think this show has had the success that it's had. 100%. Is because I think people are so... This is happening in our lives. Yeah. 
it's happening, but we don't have outlets to feel like it's happening to other people and that we're part of this community. So people are hungry yeah. for, which is why I think the show too, and the little book that it came from was, is, was so popular is because yeah. we're, we're craving that. And I think, and I know you get this and I imagine most of my listeners too, is the people who lean into these conversations, who uh -huh. want to be having these conversations are the people in a way who are the happiest Mm -hmm. who are the most joyful, who are the most able to access, not always, of course, we have our moments in our deep grief, but when you're really able to reckon with that, I think it allows us to live life yes, in a way that's so much more enriched. And we have these different events that happen. I already thought I was that person after losing my husband. And then yeah. this last year when I got my own cancer diagnosis, I was yeah. like, okay, another opportunity. Another AFCO, chapter. I call them yeah. AFCOs, another fucking yes. growth opportunity yes. to, exactly. you know, to appreciate that. And so I just, yes. I so appreciated. That's why the minute I, you walked off stage, I was like, mm, I'm making a beeline for JJ. <laughs> We're going to have a conversation. I so appreciate you there on the stage in the work that you're doing now in this conversation with me um, for our listeners. I appreciate that you are not sugarcoating the ups and downs of being a parent of a child who died of cancer, but showing us the beauty and the hardship and gifting all of us another story that allows us to feel maybe a little more seen in our own story, gives us right. some skills or language to have some of the conversations that we need to have in our lives mm -hmm. so that maybe some, even if we don't have kids that someday when we do, and if, gosh forbid, we face that, we can remember yeah. this conversation and change the generational pattern. That's it. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. No, it's true. I, I appreciate you witnessing that. It's um, the, one of the things that I, I sort of, I, I don't want to say I struggle with it, but I'm very aware of it. And we sort of touched on it earlier. Um, I don't, I'm a real, I'm not a fan of toxic positivity. And people see me and they see me telling these stories about death and I laugh and I tell, you know, and I tell a joke yeah. and I seem to be so together. I don't, of course, I don't show everybody when I'm like wailing. I do. I wail. Um, I, I need to show both sides of it, not to show that there can be a happy ending. That is actually yeah. the opposite of what I want to say. Cause this is, it's, it's not a, this is, there's a silver lining thing. I have often said there are so many gifts I've gotten from Mason's death. Um, that said, I, in a minute, I would give every gift back to have him yeah. back. Yeah. Right. And so it's your also and thing that I love yeah. so much yeah. because it doesn't have to be one or the other. My life doesn't have to be over and live in dark misery for the rest of time. Yeah. Although there was a moment I considered that, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And it also doesn't mean I have to smile and be like, no, 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 all good. Lessons learned, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, it's that's not it either. It is all of these like very complex layers to what it is to be human, you know? And this, that's, ex that's exactly it. What is, what yeah. to be human? It's a messy, yes. beautiful yes. ride. Yes. And yes. we suffer because when our world do, is messy, we think we're not doing it right. That's right. Yes. Right. So the more totally. messy, beautiful stories we tell about death, about life, about grief, the yep. more we can feel some like, okay, well, this is, I'm doing yeah. it. I'm in it. 
Yep. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's, you know, in telling these stories, I, so many people have reached out to me when they have, I've just this year, I've had two people with their parent on a deathbed call me while they're there. Like, what do I do? Yeah. And, and I, I know a, a man who lost his daughter this summer and it was same thing. How do I do this? And to be able to share in those moments and just be with someone in those moments. Cause the thing is you can't really tell them what to do other than some no. practical things. Yeah. You can't tell them how to feel. And, yeah. but to just, they, what I recognize is they know that they're not alone, that someone else has been through yeah. this feeling. And you can just sort of, it's like holding somebody's hand as you walk through the dark. That's really the only thing you're really doing. And yeah. that's what we do in our storytelling. And that makes me feel like Mason is helping this person because well, that's the thing. That's how we carry them forward. As that's we exactly move right. Forward, they come that's with right. us and Mason, yes. Mason, you know, lives on. Um, I'm, I'm friends with a, a artist, um, Dario Robleto, and he talks about sort of the, um, that we don't have the right to forget, you know, and, and so for him, yes. art is a way in which we can carry memory for it. And, and Mason gets to live on in these stories and with that dad who sat by his bedside and, and so on yes. and so on. And they get to that's live right. on with us. And again, that's not that toxic positivity. That's just the ways in which we are um, carrying them forward and finding yes. meaning in life, not finding meaning exactly. in death, by the way, because that's not what we're asked to do. Yes. Find meaning right. in life. And in life. That's right. And today, and now you've just shared this and thousands and tens of thousands of listeners are going to have heard Mason's story and then they're going to end your story and they're going to be able to bring a piece of him and the wisdom of his life and your life with him yeah. on and so on and, and so on. Moving on. Yeah, yeah that's right. Really that's beautiful. right. It's so beautiful. It really is. I really appreciate Lisa, the opportunity and what you're doing. And it's just, it's so beautiful and important. And uh, you're just, you're a gift. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch podcast today. It's been such a treat. Listeners, I'm going to drop in the show notes. Um, you should learn about Endwell and you can check out the talk um, and the interview that she gave with Endwell. You know, you got to go binge the Swedish art of death cleaning. Do it. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. And I'm also going to drop in a link, a conversation I had a season or two ago with Dr. Annie Brewster, who wrote a book called The Healing Power of Storytelling. And based on our conversation today, if you love this episode, I have a feeling you're going to love that one too. Thanks, JJ, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, my friends, I don't know about you, but this conversation renewed my passion for storytelling and being a part of a movement that brings death, dying, and grieving into the light. I so admire JJ's candor, vulnerability, and insight. I appreciate the ways she sees and feels Mason in her life to this day, and I hope it opened your mind to finding ways to connect with your person, too. By the way, the show she worked on, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, is fantastic. I highly recommend you check it out. You know, this conversation today reminded me of one that I had last season with Myra Sack, whose daughter Javi died of Tay-Sachs disease. Knowing that she would not live beyond her toddler years, Myra and her husband set out to create a lifetime of celebrations by creating what they called Shabirthdays every Friday. 
Since our conversation, Myra has turned her story into an incredibly beautiful memoir called 57 Fridays. I had the honor of reading an early copy of the book, and I can't recommend it enough. You can head to your favorite online bookseller and pre-order your copy of 57 Fridays now. And don't forget, while you're online, you can pre-order a copy of my book too, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Oh, and this season, I've committed to releasing the unedited version of these episodes on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefauver MSW. So head over there when you have time and check it out. Thank you for listening. If you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And of course, if you love the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review wherever you listen. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Gile Smith of Alafia Sounds for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>